Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Well, good morning. Today is the day. This is the day the Lord has made. It is Monday, the 9th of December. It's also the ninth day of Advent. And when I ask the question, where in the word are you today? I would be answering that question that I am in Luke chapter 9. On this ninth day of Advent, uh, we here at Faith Radio invite you to join us in reading a chapter of the Gospel of Luke every single day of Advent. The chapters of, uh, of Luke actually correspond to the days of the month of December, which correspond this year to the days of Advent. So, that's sort of nice how the calendar worked all that worked itself out that way for us this year. If you missed my conversation um, about Luke chapter nine, I talked about it at the opening of the first hour, and you can always go back and grab that podcast. If you missed it, you can go to myfaithradio.com later in the day and go to the Mornings with Carmen page or the podcast page, and it will be posted there dutifully by my colleague and friend, Paul Perot. You almost forgot my just, name. No, I, I, I. Okay, so it's hard to it's hard to push Peter out of out of one's mind oh, okay, after yeah, an extended conversation. That's true. Okay, and so I I almost yeah. said yeah your his first name and your last name, and so I had to pause that long oh, enough. That would be a bad I, confluence. Or oh, no, I would no, have no. just said Peter, Paul, and Mary because that somehow rolls off the tongue so easily. Good point. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's strange, isn't it? Okay. It so Paul Perot, thank you as always for being no here. And making this show actually work. Like, Glad to do it. That's what, that's what you do every day. So thanks, man. Okay, right. so already hearing from listeners, and I really appreciate that. At the end of the last hour, I invited listeners to communicate with us those questions that um, you are experiencing in your life, maybe in your family, maybe at your local school, maybe in your local community, maybe in your church, related to the real press that we are all experiencing by those who want to see SOGI, uh, sexual orientation, gender identity, um, language and proclamations and acceptance be the sort of way of, of our world. Um, and as a Christian, what you're experiencing in terms of the challenges to your faith, the challenges to faith language, the challenges to biblical principles, what are you experiencing and what kinds of things would you like help with? So we've already heard from listeners um, uh, uh, like this listener who says, I belong to a church for many years. They have turned away from the truth of the scripture related to sexuality. Um, and so my family uh, has decided to leave. But how do I best navigate that by joining in and loving and engaging people, um, some of whom believe as I do and some who do not? Um, leadership is fully endorsing and openly speaking of inclusion and acceptance of things that I you know, understand to be against God's teaching in Scripture. So um, how, how do we do that? You know, I have had a lot of experience over the years with a, a, a lot of Christians who have been in the context of, of, a, of a congregation when that denomination has left the Word of God, departed from the clear teaching of Scripture, and in the spirit of 
uh, this word inclusion or acceptance or the fear of losing members, the fear of not being relevant in the culture, they have changed the definition of marriage. They have changed their ordination standards and they have become fully, quote unquote, inclusive of every expression of uh, of sexual orientation and gender identity. It is hard to stay in those environments. Some people are called to remain. I would um, embrace uh, the understanding of yourself as a missionary. If God calls you to remain in an environment that has become decidedly detached from the Word of God, I would no longer refer to that as a church. I recognize it's a gathering of people. I recognize that it is... um, uh, you know, something that's happening in your community and possibly doing a lot of, quote unquote, tangible good um, for people in need. But I would not refer to it as a church because that language ought to be um, ought to be bound to Christ and to Christ as the head and to a body of believers who are in mutual submission to the word of God. Um, and if you are in a group that is not in mutual submission to the word of God, that, that God is not, that God is not Lord. Actually, the self is Lord and the desires of the self have become Lord and the affirmation of the self has become Lord. That, that may be a group of people gathering together in a place and time, but it is not a church. And so you have to sort of get clear in your own mind about what the definition of church is and what constitutes a church, and then decide for yourself, is that where I want, is that where I'm called to invest? Because you could be a countercultural missionary, an actual ambassador of the kingdom of heaven in that group of people, um, and God may be seeking through you to reach them and restore the word of God to its rightful place in order that the church might be restored. God also might be calling you out um, to plant you in a place where you can not only be nurtured in the Word of God and sit under gospel teaching, but God might also be calling you out um, in order that those people can be called out. If you stay, do they think that it is an act of affirmation of what they are saying and what they now believe and what they are now teaching? Because Jesus is pretty clear. People who teach things that are contrary to God's Word and lead the next generation astray, um, well, we all know what he says about that, and it has to do with a millstone. All right. uh, Up next, uh, Linda Mental will be here. Dr. Linda Mental will be here. She and I are going to talk about improving our emotional intelligence. Um, Your emotions are contagious, positively and negatively. And we're going to talk about um, some emotional intelligence at this time of year. Uh, She's also going to intervene um, because I have a really hard time saying no. And I need a little intervention on that. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Dr. Linda Mental is here with us again today. She's a licensed marriage and family therapist. She's a licensed clinical social worker. She's a national expert on relationships and uh, and psychology. She's been teaching for uh, more, well, she's been teaching for a long time, and she's been working with individuals and couples and families for more than 30 years. She has a really common sense approach to the conversations of the day. You can hear her program right here on the Faith Radio Network. Um, and you can also find her at drlindamental.com. Linda, welcome back. Hey, it's great to be with you, Carmen. Thanks. So you have a, yeah, absolutely. You have a piece posted right now about the six ways to boost your emotional intelligence. Let's start with what is emotional intelligence and then tell us what these six ways to improve it are. 
Well, hopefully it's a, it's a type of intelligence that we all want to get better with because it has a lot of correlation with people being very effective in their relationships and at their workplace and pretty much every aspect of your, your life. So in a nutshell, all it is, is it's really recognizing, understanding, and managing your own emotions and then being able to do the same thing by reading the emotions in other people and understanding them. So it's the type of person who can understand why am I feeling what I'm feeling, when I'm feeling it, and then go in a room of people and be able to do the same type of thing. And that is a skill that really helps you in life. Can it be improved? It can. And that's the good news. And actually, I do a lot of that with medical students where, you know, I did a study that was actually published in a referee journal uh, that shows that when medical students start medical school, they, they start with good emotional intelligence. And then as the stress gets to them, they really take a dip in a lot of areas and, and they just get so stressed that they don't get focused on that anymore. But of course, if you had a doctor, you would want your doctor to be tuned into who you are, how you're feeling, what's going on in your life and be able to help you with that. So we actually uh, can teach certain aspects of that. I'm an emotional intelligence certified trainer. You can go in and teach people. How do you get more literate with your emotions? How do you learn how to analyze the consequences of your actions better? You can actually train people to be more empathetic. And that's something that is really good news because some people grow up in families where they haven't been given a lot of empathy. They don't see it, but they can learn to do it. They can learn to put themselves in the shoes of someone else and get much more attuned to what that other person is feeling. And, and you can imagine boosting that in a marriage, boosting that at a workplace, um, any, any really any type of setting, you're going to feel more connected to those other people. You're going to be more effective in your relationships and you're going to have a higher satisfaction of intimacy and relationships, whether that's at work, in the church or in your personal life. So learning and then practicing a heart of compassion, uh, cultivating empathy is number one on the list of ways that we can boost our emotional intelligence. When we come back, we are going to ask Dr. Linda Mental to unpack uh, the next several ways that we can boost our emotional intelligence. You can find the article at drlindamental.com. We'll be right back. No. Talking with Dr. Linda Mental about how we can improve or boost our emotional intelligence. Um, Linda, we have talked about empathy and the need to cultivate empathy. What's next on the list in terms of how we can improve our emotional intelligence? So the next one is going to help you, Carmen, with saying no. <laughs> okay, good. good I need an intervention. Yeah. That's right. So if you can build your self-awareness, and, and that means that if you can sit down and think about why you do what you do and how those actions are coming into consequences that either create stress in your life or get you the results you want. So for instance, with you, you know, think, sitting down and thinking like, what is it about me that continues to do things and to not say no? And then I get overloaded and I get stressed and I find myself overwhelmed in life, um, maybe I need to look at why I say yes to things that I shouldn't say yes to. And building that type of awareness is going to help you stop, think, and then apply some consequential thinking. That's one of the key components of emotional intelligence is being able to say, all right, if I do this, then this is what's going to happen. And so I can back up 
and take charge of my actions. Does that help? So, yes, it does. And for me, it's actually connected to the next one because being curious is viewed as a positive thing here. But it's right. part of my like passionate curiosity that gets me in so much trouble. Yeah. And so one of the things that I always say, and because I think I'm a little bit like you in that regard, is I say, just because I can do it doesn't mean I should do it. Even if I'm really interested in doing it, it doesn't mean I should. So I've gotten so much better at trying to say, okay, I need balance in my life. I need to not be taking on so much that I'm constantly doing, 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 and I do need time for rest and meditation and reading the word and all the things that we know are revitalizing to our lives. Um, So that's kind of been a saying that I've had, just because I can doesn't mean I should. And so I try to evaluate, is this really something that I need to do? One, One of the really easy ones, like I always felt like I had to send Christmas cards out because we did it as a tradition in our family. I've always done it for all these years. And then I got so busy the last couple of years, I really didn't get to it. And you know what? I just said I could have done it. I would have been up till midnight every night doing it, but I'm just not going to do it this year and it's going to be okay. The world's not going to fall apart. People aren't going to hate me. Um, You know, they might not even notice because people don't do it that much anymore. And it was very free to be aware of that. Okay, so um, how about analyzing the situation and then being passionate? Well, again, you know, what is it? It's it's great to be uh, passionate about things. It really draws people to you. And that's one of the, the key factors of someone who's emotionally intelligent. People are, are drawn to you. Um, but if you can look at that and say, okay, when I have a difficult time, how do I use my passion and move through something and not give up on my goals, but continue to move towards the mark? That's a really good trait to have because sometimes you have to pull in, the, you know, pull in and put on the brakes a little bit. Then other times you have to move. But the knowing when to do that and when not to do that is really a key of someone who's emotionally intelligent. Because again, you're reading the situation, you're reading the people in the room, and you're figuring out, okay, how do I move into the direction I want to, but maybe this isn't the appropriate time, or maybe I need to slow down a little bit here. Okay, my number six is really high. Be flexible and adaptable. I'm going to read it. Emotionally intelligent people can read a room and adapt to the situation. When something isn't working, they can pivot and change directions. This is a life skill that will help you deal with curveballs that get thrown your way. An obstacle uh, may uh, present, but when you can pivot and go another direction to get to the goal, you have moved forward. Talk about the how we how we can learn to be more flexible and adaptable um, when we're seeking to boost our emotional intelligence. So, so that really has to do with your thinking, because if you're always thinking that you have to do something a particular way, and you've got your very goal focused, and that's and sometimes that's really a good thing to be. But when you get thrown a curveball, which happens at work all the times, it happens in families, it happens in your relationships, maybe you have a health problem or financial stress or something that hits you, you have to be very, very adaptable in your thinking. And that is a really good trait in marriage, by the way, be able to be adaptable and and say, okay, I was going this direction, but now we've got these other things that are in the, in the, you know, in the mix. I've got to pivot and try something new. And I think with our faith, that is really important because if we do really believe and trust that God is going to give us what we we need to get through a situation, and he's going to give us wisdom. I was praying right before the show started. I was praying, God, give me discernment all day today and the wisdom to make decisions 
as things come my way, because there are a lot of difficult things that I have to deal with today in my job. And I thought, I need your discernment and your wisdom, and I need to know when to pivot and turn a different direction. But honestly, as people of faith, Carmen, we pray about that, and we trust that the Holy Spirit is going to help us make those adaptations and to grow and change in a way that is transforming and in a way that honors God in all that we do. So I think that ability to be flexible and adaptable begins with a really strong faith that God is in my life. He's present. He's active. His Holy Spirit is directing me. And if I need wisdom and discernment, I can ask. And the scripture says that he'll give it liberally to us if we ask. I love that. Again, uh, the article is Six Ways to Boost Emotional Intelligence. Uh, You can find it at drlindamental.com. Um, Linda, before you go, uh, I need some help saying no. You have a couple of articles posted on this as well. One is a holistic approach to self-care during the holidays. And the other one is 10 tips for getting comfortable with saying no. Um, <laughs> you know, so my my challenge is um, that I say yes to too many people and to too many things. Um, and then I'm not focused and I'm not as effective as I want to be. And then I'm disappointed in myself. And then you know, things aren't done as well as I think they should be, or, uh, you know, so just help me say no. So root cause, root cause analysis in why are you saying yes to all those different people? You really have to get at the emotional issue of what is it if you say no to somebody that you think will happen. And then just a real behavioral way to deal with that would be to say, okay, I'm only going to take on three things, or I'm only going to do two parties, or I'm only going to uh, agree to these two charity, uh, you know, things that I'm going to do, or I'm going to serve this many times during this season. You have to put those limits on and begin to set boundaries around your life. And when people can't do that, it's usually looking at what is going on in their lives. What are they afraid of? What is motivating them? Um, And maybe it could be, it doesn't have to be pathological. It could be that I just like to help a lot of people people every chance I can. But then that goes back to expectation. Is that realistic? And like you said, are you being really effective if you're doing 10 things? Could you be more effective if you're doing three and you're doing them really well? No question about it, right? No, no question about it. That the answer to that. So I have written down some questions for myself. One is motivation. One word is fear. One word is relationship. One word is effectiveness. So I have a little work to do between now and the next time we talk. So I'll quiz you on it when we get together and see if you've been effective in uh, setting boundaries, setting limits, and saying no to at least, let's say, two people. So this is a good time of year, though, to do this, right? As I'm looking, as I'm looking toward the next year, um, there may be some things at the end of this year that I, I need to graciously reach out to people and say, um, I have enjoyed being involved in this, but because I have, you know, I have three really primary commitments in the next year. And if I tell people what those are, like if I say my three primary commitments are this, this, and this, um, you know, maybe it will be easier for me. I I feel like then I have to like justify why I am disengaging from something else. So I know that's, I'm, I might be pathologically, I have a problem here. So you have to just stay mission and vision aligned. So it's really good to have a mission and vision for your life. And then you can put your activities right into that and always align them with that and say no to the things that don't fit. Okay, well, hopefully um, my having this um, conversation with you this morning has helped someone else who's listening, who's having a hard time saying no. 
Um, and thank you so much um, for helping us in so many ways. Uh, I just I love talking with you and I, and, the, and your show is just excellent. So folks need to check out the Dr. Linda Mental show right here on the Faith Radio Network. Um, if you want to know, if you want to listen to some past episodes, you could listen to the podcast. It's at MyFaithRadio.com. And you can check out what she's writing, including the articles we've talked about today at DrLindaMental.com. Linda, thank you so much. All right. See you in a couple of weeks. Talk to you then. Okay. Bye-bye. We'll be right back. All right. So the Fairness for All um, Act is something that I discussed in the first hour of the program. You can go back and listen to uh, that by grabbing the podcast at MyFaithRadio.com. Dr. Al Mohler talks about it today in the briefing. Others are talking about it as well. It is something that is going to be a subject of conversation and I believe will, will is going to provide a pretty stark dividing line in terms of evangelicals across the country, both those who serve in institutions and those who serve in all kinds of varieties, um, not only of ministries, but where they serve as Christians in the world that God so loves. And so, let me just, you know, in, in as teachers and and doctors and lawyers and count, I mean, on and on and on. The list is going to be pretty long in terms of who weighs in where. So it's a conversation we will continue to have as well. A uh, good day to begin getting up to speed on it. All right, up next, Dr. David Aikman will be here. He's the editor of Godspeed Magazine. He and I are going to talk about what's going on in China with the detention of a million ethnic Uyghur Muslims in internment, uh, prison, prison camps there. We're also going to talk about Britain's upcoming election this week. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. No cell phone? No computer? You're kidding, right? This is Max Licato. Not now, thank you. I've too much to do, we say. It's crazy since the reason we kill ourselves today is because we think it will make us content tomorrow. But a funny thing happened on the way to the rat race that made me slip into neutral. My infant daughter had a stomach ache and mom was out, so it fell to daddy to pick her up. I started trying to do things with one hand and hold her with the other. You're smiling. You've tried that too? I sat down and I held her tight little tummy against my chest and she began to relax. Her little ear was right on top of my heart and she fell asleep. And she'll never remember that moment. I don't think I'll ever forget it. Goodbye, schedule, I said. See you later, routine. Hello, contentment. (laughs) Come on in. This is Max Locato. My name is Bond, James Bond. Joining me now, Dr. David Aikman, editor of uh, Godspeed Magazine. Dr. Aikman, welcome back. Carmen, thank you so much. Great to be on the program again. So I'd like to turn our attention fairly quickly here to what is going on in China. You and I have made reference to this in the past, um, and this is about the detention of a million, maybe more, ethnic Uyghurs and uh, Kazakhs in in one particular region of China. And, and just a couple of weeks ago, the New York Times... Um, I mean, really, I mean, in what is a pretty massive blockbuster of a story entitled Show Absolutely No Mercy Inside China's Mass Detentions, they, um, you know, they were responding to these 400 pages of leaked internal documents from the Chinese Communist Party 
We have now had some time right. to digest what's going on and to see uh, Congress's response. So um, give people a little window into what is happening. Well, what's going on is that Xi Jinping, uh, beginning in 2013, uh, really um, ramped up his uh, very severe policy towards separatists, as he called them, in the Xinjiang province of northwest China, where there had been separatist riots and anti-Han Chinese killings and so on for uh, periodically for a few years. And he imposed a real severe crackdown, which essentially entailed putting into detention centers or as he called them, retraining centers, literally hundreds of thousands of Uyghur families and individuals. And when the students from various universities in China went back to Xinjiang, then there was a necessity to instruct them what was going on and to basically bring the students into line with official policy. These documents reveal uh, a major element of discontent within some part of the Communist Party towards the very severe um, punishments and severe repression of the Uyghurs that Xi Jinping's policy has introduced. So this is interesting because a few years ago, there were documents released from China that were called the Tiananmen Papers when translated into English. And these revealed real disagreement with the Chinese government's crackdown on the student democracy movement in Tiananmen Square. And that indicates that no matter how hard the Communist Party tries to bring every single member of it into line with the official policy, there are I find it mercifully talking about it. There are wonderful examples of people who completely disagree with this. And these documents reveal not only the severity of the policy towards the Uyghurs, but also the degree of discontent within some elements of the party of what the policy is. So, David, we have talked about the communist treatment of Christians. We have talked less about the communists uh, in terms of their repressive treatment of, uh, of other religiously oriented people in the country. Um, then we have this other conversation that goes on about China, and it is a trade conversation, and it is an economic conversation, and it's about making sure that American businesses have access to, you know, one of the largest markets in the world. Um, and we now have this uh, additional, um, well, I mean, it probably goes on all the time, but we don't, as, we don't as average Americans pay really close attention to where our tax dollars go. And apparently um, a, a fairly large, you know, a big number uh, tax dollars from the American public goes to the World Bank. The World Bank then issues loans. And there's now um, a real issue in terms of the morality of American dollars being used as a part of the loans being made 
to expressly this portion of China. Um, and so talk with us a little bit about how this all works. You know, there's probably a lot of people, including myself, we're not terribly familiar with the World Bank and how it operates. And a $50 million loan may really not be that big in terms of the region that we're talking about. But just so how does how does all of this work together in this conversation? Well, the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund for several years have operated as sort of lenders of last resort to countries that are suffering real pinches in economic circumstances. And the World Bank and the IMF have recently been recruited uh, because many of the countries that China has targeted as location of the Belt and Road Initiative to essentially extend China's control or influence over many parts of the world. These countries took loans from China and have been unable to pay them. So the IMF was called in to help the countries pay off the loans which they owe China. And, of course, that raises entire issues of where American taxpayer dollars are going, because the United States government does finance a a significant chunk of the IMF and the World Bank. And many Americans might say, well, why are we paying off loans that uh, countries got sucked into with the Chinese? because we're uh, we're basically supporting um, a sort of power extension policy that we have no control over or no influence on. And so I think that's a general public reaction to the fact that an awareness of China's predatory policies towards much of the rest of the world has become very well known in many parts of the United States causing people a lot of discomfort. And we just want to add to this particular conversation before we move on to another one after the break. Um, The U.S. House has passed really significant sanctions on China for their mass detention of Uyghur Muslims. Um, And that is it's something that was overwhelmingly passed um, by the House on December the 2nd, I think. So we just want to, you know, we we do want to be pointing to the positive things that are happening Um, And certainly uh, President Trump has uh, reaffirmed U.S. support for Hong Kong's um, what I'll describe as autonomy. Um, And all of that is, you know, is, um, uh, you know, it's it's complicated. You and I have talked at length about what's going on in Hong Kong, and and that's complicated as well. Hey, when we come back, can we pivot to a conversation about the elections taking place in uh, in Britain this week? Absolutely. Certainly. Okay. Very interesting situation. Very interesting situation. All right. That's up next with Dr. David Aikman from Godspeed Magazine. We'll be right back. All right. Continuing my conversation with Dr. David Aikman, editor of Godspeed Magazine. Um, there are elections taking place, a general election this week. In Great Britain, tell us what's at stake, and then I want to have the religion conversation related to this. Okay. Well, what's at stake is the the nature of the British government that is supposed to complete 
arrangements for getting Britain out of the EU. In other words, completing the whole Brexit process. And so many people have said that this is an election that is really generational in importance because if whether Britain can escape the EU, as to use the language of pro-Brexit people, um, will determine the nature of the country and the prosperity or otherwise for generations to come. So it's a very important election. And the Labour Party, of course, uh, is the chief opposition party, and Mr. Corbyn, the leader, wants to be prime minister, obviously, enough. And they are opposed to the policy of the Conservatives, who, under Boris Johnson, want to complete the Brexit process, get it through Parliament, get out of the EU, and move on to other things. And the Liberal Democrats, which is a small minority party, much smaller than Labour and Conservatives, they want to completely uh, abolish Brexit, at least to defy it. And they want to remain in the EU in spite of the fact that the referendum in 2016 clearly expressed the will of the British people, 52% to 48%, to, to leave the EU. And so that is the chief starting point of the election. But underneath it, of course, there are all kinds of issues of how much the government or how much the taxpayers' dollars are spent on social care and the National Health Service and so on. And in addition to that, because we're now pivoting to a topic you mentioned, Carmen, the issue is, is there any sort of serious religious significance in any of these election processes? And I think clearly the Labour Party is under serious attack from the British Jewish community because Chief Rabbi declared that Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of Labour, was unfit to be Prime Minister because of his record of tolerating anti-Semitism within the party and um, the fact that the party was actually under official investigation for potential racist attitudes. So, um, and then in response to that, the Muslim Council or one member of the Muslim Council of Britain issued a complaint that the Conservative Party had been guilty of Islamophobia and what it called a pattern of prejudice against Muslims. So you've got, I don't think these are on the same level. I don't think the Islamophobia charge reaches quite to the same depth that the anti-Semitism charges against Labour takes. But this is showing that there's a religious element in the election which people had not considered previously. It's interesting to me in reading um, in reading the coverage uh, related to sort of the uh, the religion storylines in all of this. We have the Jews and uh, and then those who are Hindu lining up kind of on one side, um, saying we really feel threatened by labor um, and by this particular labor candidate. Uh, on the other side, we have Muslims saying this is our guy, this is our candidate. We we like this person. 
And um, and the only thing we're hearing from the Church of England is, I mean, I'm not saying we're hearing nothing. We are hearing that the concerns, uh, particularly of the Jewish community, should be taken seriously. But we're not hearing um, uh, we're not hearing the Church of England bearing any real influence uh, out. And I I have to tell you that uh, for a person who who thinks the Church of England imagines the Church of England still has great influence. Maybe I'm just wrong. Well, I'm sorry to say, I think you are a little in error, Carmen, although I'm reluctant to say it because I was brought up in the Church of England. And I've always seen the Church of England as representing the best the best strands of European Protestantism. But I think the Church of England, like Anglican-style churches, particularly the Episcopal Church in the United States, has become steadily more liberal in its social doctrines and much more wishy-washy of its biblical standards. And because of that, I think a large number of British people really don't respect it anymore. They don't think that clerics from the Church of England, including the Archbishop of Canterbury, who is a congenial and a decent man, they don't think he really has anything like the influence he should have um, in a country which he's presiding over the church of. Yeah, it's really stunning. I feel like just in my lifetime, um, that has been a mammoth, actually, I would say just in the last couple of decades, a really mammoth waning of influence in terms of the Church of England and her leadership. Um, as as you describe it, as she has become more wishy-washy, um, she has you know, she has lost respect. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I'm going to be praying for a restoration of the Word of God in the Church of England in order that uh, the Church could, you know, have greater influence. But until she returns, until she returns to the teaching of Scripture, right, she's not going to have the kind of influence that she should have. Um, and, and her leaders are going to continue to, you know, say things that, you know, people aren't listening to and leadership they're not following. It's really, it's really sad. All right, David, you and I probably um, have to leave it right there today and let you have some closing thoughts this okay. week before we before we part company. Well, I just add one thing that many British evangelicals think that leaving the EU is part of the process of bringing back the gospel into the Church of England and into the country. And they believe a real evangelical revival is not very possible or not very easy as long as we remain within the EU. Fascinating. All right, that's a thread we'll pull another time. Thank you so much. Dr. David Aikman from Godspeed Magazine. Always a pleasure. We'll be right back. All right, what a day, right? What a day. And what a nice little jewel there at the very end from Dr. Aikman. Um, Isn't it a delight to talk with brothers and sisters in Christ around the world and, and gain their perspective on what's happening in the days in which we live together as kingdom ambassadors. So that's who we are, and that's what we are being deployed out into the world to do on this day. You and I are the ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven, and so let us live as such. Let us represent Christ to the world in ways that honor him. Let us represent the word of God well. Be sure you are in the word in order that the word can get into you, in order that you can go out into the world. 
Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.